Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The $6 million buy, a key battleground, goes bionic? The lead starts right now. Tonight, one of the most anticipated debates of the year, John Fetterman versus Mehmet Oz in their one and only face-off as this political season kicks into overdrive for candidates nationwide. Plus, distraction for Democrats, the anger and outrage over a letter to President Biden now retracted. And Moscow shuts down an appeal to release Brittany Griner from a Russian prison. Is there any hope left to bring the WNBA star home? Welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper, and we'll get to the midterms in just a moment. But first, a significant step for the Justice Department and its investigation into the January 6th attack. Sources tell CNN the DOJ is trying to force the testimony of Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, the top two lawyers from Donald Trump's White House, and hear about their conversations with the former president. This is exclusive new reporting. So let's get right to CNN's Sarah Murray. Sarah... This is an attempt to break through a firewall of sorts that Trump has used to avoid scrutiny of his own actions. That's right. The former president has cited executive privilege, attorney-client privilege, in trying to bar a lot of these top witnesses from sharing with criminal investigators looking to the events surrounding January 6th from getting too close to conversations folks may have had with the former president, those in his inner circle. So what we're seeing with this effort by the Justice Department to compel Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin to testify again is to try to get closer to the former president and that inner circle. So that's a court battle that's playing out in secret. It's a sealed proceeding. We have seen the Justice Department have some success in piercing this sort of privilege shield with other witnesses, though. Sources have also told me and my colleagues, Evan Perez and Caitlin Polance, that two top aides to former Vice President Mike Pence, Mark Short and Greg Jacob, have already gone in and testified again before a grand jury. They were facing these sort of similar privilege fights and a judge ruled that they had to go back and they had to answer more questions. So this is really important for the Justice Department's investigation into January 6th. We, of course, reached out to a Trump spokesperson for comment. He slammed the weaponized Justice Department and called all the investigations surrounding the former president witch hunts. Sarah Murray, thank you so much for this brand new reporting. I want to bring in Elliot Williams, a CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor. Elliot, what does it take to pierce a privilege like this, whether it be executive or attorney client privilege? What would it take for a federal judge to rule that they have to testify? You know, look, and you're exactly right with that question, John, because the, any former president is going to be entitled to some measure of protection for conversations that happen in the White House with attorneys, either via, via attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. Now, look, as this has come up over the years, going back to Richard Nixon, it's very hard to over, for, a, a, for a White House to overcome the criminal process. And if criminal investigators are looking into something and believe that there might be evidence of a crime somewhere, then certainly they can pierce the those privileges. And that may happen here. Evidence of a possible crime. What then do you think it is that the Justice Department, that investigators want to get at? What door could be opened 
with the testimony of Philbin and Cipollone. Now, look, if it's related to January 6th, um, my my assumption is that it might be tied to the false elector scheme that we've heard much about, uh, which is communications with might possible communications with the White House and individuals around the country as they were seeking and as folks were seeking to undermine the results of, of, of the 2020 election. You know, that that's a guess here, but we just don't know because, you know, as Sarah's reporting had noted, this is happening in secret. These are sealed proceedings because of the sensitivity of them. Um, but, you know, look, any number of matters would have come through the White House. Uh, and certainly you and I are both well aware of the number of investigations surrounding the former president. So, so at this point, who knows? Cipollone did speak to the January 6th committee, although it was in specific areas with parameters. Presumably there wouldn't be the same parameters here. And I just want to make this understandable um, for our audience who, like me, we don't have law degrees. The, the issue here is what? If prosecutors can prove to the judge, if they can make the judge determine that Pat Philbin is a witness to possible crimes. I guess the, the standard would be more likely than not that crimes were committed. If he was a crime to such, uh, a witness to such crimes, then that testimony could be compelled? Yes, it certainly could be compelled. Now, look, any advice he's providing to the former president in his capacity as a lawyer is going to be protected. But there's a world of materials that might have happened outside of that scope if he's not advising on the law and merely is seeing crimes happening is a party to a crime himself. Now, we don't have evidence that that's happening. If he's, uh, you know, if he's aware of someone else's knowledge of crimes, all of those are fair game. All these privileges, like attorney-client privilege or executive privilege, seek to protect are the specific communications themselves in the context of the person's job. But that's not going to protect lawbreaking if, in fact, that did happen. And the fact that Mark Shore, who was chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence and Greg Jacob, who was himself a lawyer, the fact that they have already testified and through whatever legal process were either compelled to or voluntarily did, the fact that they did, is that a precedent that will play here? Oh, absolutely. Mark Short and Patrick Philbin, who was a senior attorney um, in the White House as well. Uh, frankly, that and again, I, I made, made a reference to Nixon before and the efforts that were used to pierce some of these attorney client privilege questions. But no, the mere fact that we have the nation has seen testimony from senior White House staffers and senior lawyers will absolutely be in the mind of the court that is considering whether it is appropriate to break or pierce use uh, the term these privileges that exist. All right, Elliot Williams, thank you so much for helping us understand this. We will watch this resolve itself perhaps quickly. Thank you so much. In the meantime, we're just hours away from two of the most high-profile debates just two weeks out now from Election Day. In Pennsylvania, Democrat John Fetterman and Republican Mehmet Oz face off in their one and only debate in this critically important contest, which could determine control of the U.S. Senate. Fetterman is hoping to convince voters he is healthy enough to serve after suffering a stroke earlier this year. And we'll see if the celebrity TV career of Mehmet Oz will help him in his first ever general election debate. And in New York, incumbent Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul will square off against Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin in a surprisingly tight race where crime has become a central issue. New polls show that the race is tightening in a state where Democrats have dominated statewide races for some time now. Athena Jones is covering that New York matchup. Kyung La is in Arizona where there are new allegations of voter intimidation. But first... The scene is Jeff Zeleny at the Pennsylvania debate site in Harrisburg. And Jeff, the Republican Senate super PAC is planning to make a $6 million buy, hence my bad biotic man joke, a $6 million buy there to boost Mehmet Oz ahead of this crucial debate. 
And John, that is a sense that Republicans believe that Pennsylvania is a critical piece of the puzzle that we'll be watching two weeks from tonight as they try and win the majority in the U.S. Senate from Democrats. They do believe that Pennsylvania offers a good opportunity, that Dr. Mehmet Oz has been uh, gradually climbing throughout the last uh, several weeks and months and now is within striking distance of John Fetterman. Of course, all of that dynamic is coming onto the stage tonight, where for an hour this evening, these two men, John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz, will come face to face for the very first time. For the last several months, they've been uh, really going after each other quite aggressively from a long distance range. But tonight, all those issues uh, that have been playing out will be front and center. Crime, the economy, inflation, abortion rights. So it sounds like a typical debate, but this is anything but a typical debate. Of course, John Fetterman has been recovering from a stroke that slowed his candidacy earlier this uh, summer. So tonight, there'll be closed captions, largely like the ones you see on your television screen, but the candidate will be relying on those to understand the questions and make sure he can give the proper answers. We will see how Dr. Oz responds to that. Of course, he made his name and fame as a television doctor, but the debate stage, an entirely different thing. But I am told by advisors uh, to the Oz campaign that he wants to keep it on issues and they want to show differences on crime, uh, the Biden agenda, et cetera. So the, the TV stage uh, behind me here, the TV studio, uh, the two men are going to be in there alone without an audience, just with two moderators and two large television screens with those closed captions. So certainly the most interesting debate we've seen in this entire midterm election cycle. We'll see if it changes the dynamic of this race. John. Jeff Zelnick, great to have you there to watch in person. Thank you very much. Turning now to New York, where crime and the economy are top of mind issues for voters ahead of tonight's debate. CNN's Athena Jones is following the race for governor. Athena, this is a more competitive contest than many predicted. So what are you expecting to hear tonight? Hi, John. Well, it's a big deal that this race is closer than expected. Uh, this state of New York has not elected a, a Republican to statewide office since 2002. So it's been 20 years. Lee Zeldin thinks he has a chance. And I expect tonight to see the congressman uh, trying to score as many political points as possible against the governor on the issue of crime and public safety. These are issues that are top of mind for voters in New York. It's something that Zeldin has effectively uh, pushed uh, Hochul on in recent weeks. We, he almost never misses an opportunity to show up at a, at a subway station or, or, or a bodega or someplace where a violent incident has occurred in order to, to push uh, Hochul and, and other Democrats on crime. This, is, of course, is something that's happening all over the country. Republicans trying to tie Democrats to being soft on crime. Now, when it comes to Governor Hochul, I expect her to tout her achievements when it comes to job creation, her record protecting abortion rights, her record on things like gun safety, for instance, raising the age to buy a semiotic weapon to 21 years old after that tops supermarket shooting. But the real issue is going to be how she responds uh, to, to the charges that they haven't done enough to keep New Yorkers safe. She's also likely to try to uh, paint these efforts at crime fighting as, as an ongoing, a continuation of a strategy. That's what she told me when I caught up with her uh, in, in, in Harlem on Sunday after she and Mayor Eric Adams had made a big announcement about adding more police uh, to subways. So she's going to argue that she's been focused on this uh, for a long time. Bottom line here, though, Zeldin is optimistic, but what is it going to take for him to win? He'd have to win upstate, which is very rural and, and, and more likely, uh, do very well downstate and also do very well in New York City, a very progressive city, a city that's only grown more progressive. That is where uh, he could see challenges. So we'll be watching to see what happens tonight.
All right, Athena Jones, thank you very much. Let's go out west now to Arizona and an update on those reports of armed individuals patrolling near ballot drop boxes. Two organizations are seeking a temporary restraining order against a group they allege is running a campaign of voter intimidation. Uh, what is being called a, a vigilante incident, such as this what is being called a vigilante incident in Maricopa County, seen in this video. This after the Arizona Secretary of State referred six reports of potential intimidation to the Justice Department and the state's attorney general. CNN's Kyung Law, live in Phoenix. So, Kyung, what can you tell us about these lawsuits? Well, the hearing will be scheduled for tomorrow, so we'll get many more details about exactly what the grounds of this is. But I can tell you what this lawsuit is about, John. It's about the silver box that you see behind me. There are two of them in Maricopa County. And this one here in Phoenix, it's where people drop off their early ballots. It's very innocuous. It's something that's been around for quite some time. But where I'm standing is where almost like in shifts. People have been setting up lawn chairs, watching people with binoculars, taking pictures of the voters themselves or of license plates. And so this lawsuit filed on behalf of two organizations, a group representing a, a retired persons, another representing a Latino organization. They call this voter intimidation, especially when you look at what is happening in Mesa, Arizona. It was that video that you just showed, John, of those two people who were standing there at the back of a pickup truck, armed and watching in tactical gear and mass. So we do know what the impact of this is already. There have been six complaints uh, filed with the Arizona Secretary of State's office, voters saying that they are simply intimidated to vote. John. And, Kyung, it's not just the ballot drop box watchers. You're hearing more from law enforcement and election officials about other security concerns. Absolutely. What you see is this chain link fence. There's now a wrought iron fence beyond that. None of this existed before 2020. This was an open area where people could come in and observe at their whim. They could speak to election officials face to face. The reason why all of this is here is because of threats. There have been a number of arrests against election officials here in this very county. Uh, their lives uh, at risk, their addresses posted, their children's names posted. And that's something that these local officials are facing now since 2020, John. Clearly done for a reason. Kyung Law in Phoenix, thank you very much. Oh boy, do we have a lot to discuss in terms of the midterms with just two weeks to go. Let me start with CNN's Caitlin Collins here. Get your sleep while you can. That's my advice to you. Look, this debate tonight, right now, <laughs> right now, this debate tonight in Pennsylvania, you know, Mehmet Oz and John Fetterman. We've talked a lot about John Fetterman. We will in a second. But Mehmet Oz, the CNN poll that just came out, shows he's wildly unpopular in Pennsylvania. Very high unfavorability, you know, a net negative favorability rating yet. So if you're Dr. Oz going on that to debate stage tonight, what do you need to do? Well, I mean, he's been focusing on the issues that our polls show that Pennsylvania voters care about, which is crime, economy, inflation, those issues that they've been looking at that he's been talking about. The other thing I'm interested by is, you know, he has been unpopular in some of these numbers, but then you've also seen Republicans coming around him and really closing in around him in these last few days. You saw Senate Republicans in their fund that they use to help candidates fundraise, moving funds out of New Hampshire, putting it in Pennsylvania. That's very interesting to me to see them really surrounding him and seeing these core voters of his really close in Republicans around him to help him 
in this. And so that's what I'll be watching also to see how he handles that, because, of course, you know, the way he talks about that and the way he talks about what matters most to these voters, it could be what determines if he wins in two weeks from now. The the net favorability issue, do you think that might make him cautious in terms of trying to poke Fetterman on the health issues? Oh, yeah. I think uh, if I were him, I'm not sure I'd poke it at all. I would just stick to the issues. I mean, Fetterman's going to rise or fall on this debate based on whether he can actually defend his record. A lot of that, I think, is going to come on crime. Um, I mean, Democrats and Republicans are arguing about inflation right now broadly, but specifically in this race. That's one of the things that has reeled in Fetterman for the Republicans is uh, this issue of his track record on the votes on the parole board, his views on crime. I would see Oz going to that well over and over and over tonight. So expectations, the expectations, which I learned covering, you know, Scott's old boss, George W. Bush. In the 2004 (laughs) campaign, the Bush campaign called John Kerry the best debater since Cicero. Absolutely. That that, that was what was said there. So the Fetterman campaign is trying to set expectations going into this debate. And this is from a campaign memo to reporters from the Fetterman campaign. John is ready to share his vision for Pennsylvania, defend his record and make the case against Oz. But... If we're all being honest, Oz clearly comes into Tuesday night with a huge built-in advantage. Well, he is a former TV personality, so does know a little bit something about, you know, being on television and stage presence. I'll give him that. But I do think, going back to this um, popularity and the sort of um, the depth of the, the support for each of the candidates, I think Oz has a different challenge, which is also to come off as authentic as somebody who cares about the people of Pennsylvania, because he has so easily been cast as out of touch, very wealthy. Fetterman is so considered so salt of the earth of the people. I suspect on the crime issue, when you talk about something like cash bail, for example, we're talking about poor people who end up about over 500,000 people currently in jail because they can't afford bail. We're not talking about violent criminals. So if he comes in and talks about, tell a couple of real stories about real people Oz has got to come off as trustworthy. He's got to come off as someone that you believe is going to go to Washington and fight for him and not just be beholden to the Trump ideology or the Republican Party. So I do think I like what they were trying to do with expectations, (laughs) but but I'm going to shift them just a little bit. Yeah, they were saying, you know, this is Oz's format where he's natural. One number that stood out to me in our poll was. You know, we are seeing where they believe that Oz has the advantage when it comes to these economic issues. But one thing that CNN polled people on was whether or not they believe Pennsylvania, they would be better off basically in Pennsylvania if the GOP got control of Congress. 46 percent they said they believe they'd be better off. 45 percent said worse off. So it's pretty close there when it, when it comes to determining what the whole ticket looks like in Pennsylvania. Yeah, close generic ballot. And I think the Biden number here is really important. If you believe Joe Biden is 45 or better, you won't see Oz going to that well so much tonight, trying to tie Fetterman to Biden. If you believe, which I think the Republicans do, that Biden is south of 45, sort of in the the low 40s, then you will see him saying, regardless of how you feel about us personally, the direction of the country under full Democratic control is not good, and you have a chance to correct it. That sort of takes the personal out of it, right? You may not love me, but you certainly don't love, you know, $1,000 head of lettuce at the grocery store, and we can't even keep the Wawa's open here uh, because there's so much but, crime. And so I think he, that that's, that takes your image issues off the table and puts yeah. it squarely on quality of life issues. But does he know what a Wawa is? Has he ever been there? I mean, that, <laughs> seriously, that continues to be I wouldn't advise him to go. The- <laughs> Apparently, they're pretty violent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, again... Well, well let's a- talk about crime for a second since yes. Scott brought it up here. In New York, Kathy Hochul, yes. the governor running for re-election, Lee Zelda, making some inroads. How nervous are Democrats? 
Look, it is, uh, this race has become uncomfortably close. Let's just be honest about that. And part of that is some of the criticism, I'll be honest, has been that Kathy Hochul's campaign has been a little bit, I would say, you know, sort of understated, right? That she needed to be out there and be more aggressive. She clearly in her debate is going to have to do two things. She's going to have to talk about the economy and the ways in which she is trying to lower costs and improve the economy in the state of New York and crime. And one of the challenges we know for statewide politicians in New York How you talk about crime, how it resonates in New York City versus upstate New York, very different. We've seen Mm -hmm. many politicians make that mistake. And so she's going to have to really balance that conversation in this debate tonight. Look, and you're seeing Democrats nationwide pivot to discussions about economy and crime. I'm so sorry. I just wanted to get to this other issue, which has sort of transcended U.S. borders all the way over to Ukraine, which is that 30 progressives did sign this letter, which was sent to the president, suggesting that the White House be willing to negotiate with Vladimir Putin. Now, they have since retracted that letter after there was serious blowback uh, from this. How, how does this happen? A lot of blowback even from members who said they signed it months ago and that if they had known it was coming out now, they would not have signed it given where things stand with Ukraine. Basically saying that Biden needs to change his approach, have direct talks with Russia. Of course, Biden has said all along they would not have these conversations if Ukraine's not in the room. It's up to Ukraine to decide what this looks like. And it's funny because you see these now mainstream Democrats siding with people like former Vice President Pence, who said, you know, appeasement has never worked. And he was speaking to people in his own party after Republicans were talking about maybe, you know, aid to Ukraine isn't going to be guaranteed if we take the majority, maybe not at the level that you've seen it so far. And now you've seen a complete backpedaling by these progressive Democrats pulling back this, the White House distancing themselves from this letter. And they are saying that's not what we think is the right approach. This is up to Ukraine to decide what this looks like, not saying that they shouldn't be having these direct talks. This totally has obliterated one of these Democratic talking points here on TV every day that the Republicans are the pro-Putin party and et cetera, et cetera. You've got a massive number of Democrats here who, by the way, months ago, months ago, were calling into question America's commitment to helping our Ukrainian friends fight off these Russians. It's not like they came to this revelation in the last Uh, 24 hours. It's a total mess. It's a total fiasco. And I do think this, at the end of the day, however the elections shake out, there will remain a bipartisan consensus to help Ukraine. But this is but but the idea that we shouldn't be in it has been covered as though it's only a Republican issue. And it's clearly not the case. Well, you have had some Republicans early on who who praised Putin and his strength. I don't know, the former leader, the current leader of, of your party. So I wouldn't say that that talking point has been completely obliterated. At the same time, It was obviously a huge mistake. The timing is not what anybody wanted. But I do think after the election, what our support for Ukraine looks like in a bipartisan fashion is probably going to be different than it is now. Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, Caitlin Collins. Now, go get that sleep. Now is a good time to Thank you all so much for being with us. Next, we zero in on crime after yet another deadly school shooting. The weapons police say a gunman carrying into a St. Louis high school Plus, scary moments for a CNN crew as Ukrainians track the movements of an incoming Russian attack. In the National League, today police say the 19-year-old behind Monday's deadly St. Louis high school shooting was armed with an AR-15-style rifle, more than a dozen high-capacity magazines, and more than 600 rounds of ammunition. A teacher who managed to escape says he was one of the targets. Listen. I stepped into the hallway 
to find out, you know, a little bit more about what was going on. At that moment, uh, the shooter was in the hallway and fired uh, a shot at myself uh, and another uh, co-worker. That teacher's 16-year-old son was injured in the attack. Jean Kushka, a 61-year-old, L, uh, 61-year-old PE teacher, died, along with 15-year-old Alexandria Bell, three weeks shy of her 16th birthday. CNN Chief Law Enforcement and Intelligence Analyst John Miller is here with me now. John, by the numbers, the police arrived four minutes after getting the 911 call. It took eight minutes once there to find and kill the gunman. You compare that to the Uvalde, that sure sounds good. There were security officers on the scene at the school, though, and I think there are questions about whether they could have maybe prevented this from happening. How do you assess all of this? So the security officers in St. Louis at that school are, I believe, largely unarmed. So they have radios um, and they keep order with the kids, but they don't have guns. Their real function during this was organizing evacuations where they could, communicating over those radios, and importantly, passing that information to the responding officers. I think if you look at Uvalde and you look at this, this went by the book. And the book is relatively new. Uh, forming contact teams, immediately engaging the threat. You know, if the 911 call comes in at 9-11, they're there at 9-15. By 9-23, they've engaged the shooter. By 9-25, they're on the radio saying he's down. That is, I mean, those incidents aren't supposed to happen. But if they happen, that's how the police response is supposed to go. That's relatively quick. Uh, Certainly, once they got there, eight minutes Now, police aren't sharing details about how the gunman was able to get into the building, but they say that locked doors probably slowed him down. They won't say more than that, and this is the quote, because I don't want to make this easy for anybody else. Do you think that's the right call? So I think eventually that information will come out, but they have a point. You know, you're dealing with an individual who's 18 years old, who's been planning this for a long time, who has brought multiple 30-round magazines and fit them in the pockets of a tactical vest, which he purchased for the purposes of this shooting. It would not be out of the realm of possibility that he would have also uh, obtained breaching tools or something to facilitate entry. On the other hand, he's also a kid who went to that school, and every kid knows how to get into the school or out of the school um, in ways that strangers wouldn't. So there's been a rise in, in what's called swatting incidents, which are fake calls about fake active shooter incidents, active shooter incidents that aren't happening. Happening, John, is this a case of, you know, crank calls or there are so many now people are wondering whether there's something coordinated or maybe even more nefarious about it? This is what drove me crazy when I was in the NYPD and is driving all of my former colleagues crazy around the country, which is there's two things happening here. And particularly in the post-Uvalde world, one is Get there fast. Don't stand around waiting for the SWAT team or putting on your heavy vest. Nobody in that, nobody in those classrooms has any of that protection. Run in, engage the... So, that's what happened yesterday. But when you take the swatting incident, the rules are the same. You get the call, you get there fast, you go in, you're looking to engage, your gun is out, you know, you're searching and scanning for that threat. You really raise the danger when there is actually no threat. People say, why are you here? What happened? We got a call. It's extraordinarily dangerous. And one of the positive things that comes out of this is they put a lot of work into tracking down who's on the other end of that call. And if they can, they arrest them. Yeah, you get in serious trouble for that. It puts lives at risk. It does. 
Uh, John Miller, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, John. All right, coming up for us, we have much more on the ground from Moscow uh, and in Russia. What may be the real reason Putin suddenly is ramping up claims about a so-called dirty bomb in Ukraine? Topping our world lead, Putin just hit the gas. Today, he told his newly formed Coordination Council they need to speed up decision-making and manufacturing to win the bloody war he calls a special operation. It comes as Ukraine's military touts a potential retreat of Russian forces near the key southern city of Kherson. CNN's Fred Plykin followed along with the Ukrainian military unit. He reports its members are confident they're one step closer to taking back that shining city in the south. En route to the front in one of the most active areas of the brutal war in Ukraine, with a rocket artillery team taking aim at Vladimir Putin's forces. They're called Carlson and use light trucks with missile pods mounted on the bed. The rockets carry a message of retribution, this one signed on behalf of a fallen soldier, for Furia from the Witch, it says. Our vehicle is very effective because we can set up quickly, fire and get away again. Now they're aiming at Russian positions several miles away. But Russia's artillery is also dangerous and could fire back fast. It's not safe, he screamed. We have to get out of here as fast as... We have to get out of here as fast as possible because the Russians might target this position after they got hit by the salvo from our rockets. Their key to accuracy comes from the air. The drone scopes out the target and then watches as the artillery hits a Russian military repair shop, the unit says. We are the eyes of the unit. We do reconnaissance and then make sure the target gets hit. The Russians are under such pressure, they've started evacuating tens of thousands of people from Kherson. And the Ukrainians believe Moscow is making its unfounded claims about Kiev preparing to use a so-called dirty bomb because Russia's troops are pinned down in this area. Carlson's commander believes it's only a matter of time before they oust Vladimir Putin's army from here. By the end of the year, we believe Kherson will be under Ukrainian flags. And they hope their unit will make a small difference in the battle for Kherson. And, you know, it certainly seems like one of the most active regions in this bloody war that's going on in Ukraine. We spent a good amount of time there on the ground in Kherson, and really the entire time that we were there, John, we could hear those thuds of our artillery and rocket artillery really being exchanged there. <clears throat> so an extremely uh, uh, active front, front line there. The Ukrainians, for their part, John, they say they're really concerned about some of the rhetoric that's coming out of Moscow uh, with those allegations about a dirty bomb. In fact, the foreign minister of Ukraine saying today he believes that the fact that the Russians are so pervasive and keep uttering those allegations shows the Russians themselves might be planning a false flag operation, John. Fred, what a perspective. What a window you just gave us into one of the crucial areas now in Ukraine. Thank you so much. For that report, you and your team stay safe. Fred Plykland and Kravi Ree in southern Ukraine. Appreciate it. Next, Brittany Griner's request to get out of a Russian prison denied. Is there any avenue left to bring the basketball star home?
We're back with more of our world lead in a huge setback for Brittany Griner. Today, the WNBA star lost her court appeal in Moscow. Her lawyers say the ruling means the legal process to free her from Russian custody is, quote, basically over. The 32-year-old who brought less than a gram of cannabis oil into Russia in February could spend nearly a decade in a penal colony. As CNN's Kylie Atwood reports, U.S. government negotiations, diplomatic negotiations, might be her only play left. I've been here almost eight months. From behind bars in a Russian prison, Brittany Griner made her final plea in court today. People with more severe crimes have gotten less than what I was given. The American basketball star also apologized once again for what she called a mistake, accidentally bringing cannabis oil into Russia. I did not intend to do this, but I understand the charges brought against me. And I just hope that that is also taken into account, too, as well, that I, that I did plead guilty. But the Moscow court upheld her conviction, leaving her guilty of smuggling drugs into the country, only slightly reducing her nine-year prison sentence by only a few months. U.S. officials responded swiftly, calling the Russian judicial system a sham. Nothing in the result of today's appeal changes the fact that the United States government considers Ms. Greiner to be wrongfully detained. We're in constant contact with the Russian authorities to get Brittany and others out. And so far, we've not been meeting with much positive response. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that Biden administration officials are working, quote, through every available channel to get Greiner and Paul Whelan, another American wrongfully detained in Russia for nearly four years, back home. I'm a, 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 a victim of political kidnap and ransom. The Biden administration has worked on this effort at a persistent pace in recent months, following an initial proposal from the United States for a prisoner swap that included Victor Boot a convicted arms trafficker serving a 25-year prison sentence in the United States. But so far, U.S. officials say that Russia has repeatedly responded with a demand that is not feasible for the United States to deliver on. But we're not stopping. And today, Greiner's lawyers had a somber outlook for the two-time Olympic gold medalist's future in Russia. She had some hopes, and these hopes vanished today. So I think that's why she is doomed. Now, we also heard this afternoon from Lindsay Collis, who is Brittany Griner's agent, and she said that what happened today was disappointing yet unsurprising, said it further validates the fact that Griner is being held as a political pawn in Russia. And it was very clear that she was trying to rally support for the urgency around the need to get Brittany Griner home, reminding folks of what has happened to other American detainees and warning that something might happen at any time. John? Nine years in a penal colony. Kylie Atwood at the State Department. Keep us posted. Thank you. The CEO of one of America's biggest banks says a recession in the coming months is not his biggest worry. Hear what is next. In our world lead, Britain has a new prime minister again. Rishi Sunak went through the formality of meeting with King Charles, who asked him to form a government. Later in front of 10 Downing Street, Sunak warned of tough times ahead. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. 
The British, just like the U.S. and other countries, are being battered by inflation. But is the prospect of a recession the world's biggest problem right now, or is a more sinister threat out there? CNN's Richard Quest just sat down with a group of prominent business executives at a forum in Saudi Arabia. Richard, quite a day or, or days for you at this point you've had. What worries them the most? There's obviously the issues de jour, but then you've got the structural and the bigger problems that really they can't do much about. And we're talking about global instability. Uh, when I spoke to Jamie Dimon, that was very much on his mind. Was it the issue of recession or was it something bigger? I, I think the most important thing is, is, is the geopolitics that's going on in Russia, Ukraine, uh, America, China, you know, the relationships of the, of the Western world. And that, that would have me far more concerned than whether it's a mild or slightly severe recession. Because they know how to deal with a mild and slightly severe uh, recession. But the question, of course, that they do have to face is those rising interest rates, embedded inflation, slowdowns in the economies, which potentially lead to recession. And here, two of the top Wall Street bankers were in agreement. Yeah, they both told you, Richard, that they believe a recession is likely? Yes, listen to David Solomon and Jamie Dimon, both of them saying that they think the recession is now the most likely outcome, however bad it might be. So I, too, am in the camp that we, we likely, likely have a recession in the U.S., going to have, I think, most likely a recession. We might be in a recession in Europe. Jamie? I agree. You agree... Where do you think we are in the process? Six months away. All right, we lost Richard Quest, but you can tell quite a day of discussions he had there with some of the, the biggest, most prominent business leaders in the world. More businesses are cutting ties with Kanye West after weeks of public pressure to act. Is his anti-Semitic hate speech finally catching up with him? I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't drop me. Now what? Well, this morning, Adidas was the first shoe to drop on Kanye West, or yay, as he's known legally. Then hours later, Gap started pulling Yeezy Gap merchandise from his stores, from its stores. One might reasonably ask, what took so long for this step to happen or these steps to happen? Kanye tweeted back on October 8th, more than two weeks ago, that he was, quote, going death con three on Jewish people. And now the corporate world is finally catching up. Kanye's Instagram post deleted. Twitter locked his account. The Balenciaga fashion house ended its partnership with him and his talent agency dropped him as a client. George Floyd's family also sued Kanye this month for saying Floyd died of a fentanyl overdose instead of a police officer on his neck. For nine and a half minutes. Again, one of the questions for Adidas now is why so many days after? All right, be sure to join Jake Tapper on CNN tonight. Jake sits down with former Republican congressman turned libertarian, uh, libertarian Justin Amash. Amash was one of the first Republicans to speak out against Donald Trump. 
And tonight, Jake will get his take on the hold the former president still has on the Republican Party and what it means for the upcoming midterm elections now, just two weeks away. That's tonight at 9 p.m. right here on CNN. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at John Berman. Or you can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.